welcome to episode 21 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we take a deep dive into the world of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality today. I'm your host, Matt Morley, and today I'm talking to Dr. Stephen McGregor, the Scottish founder of the Leadership Academy here in Barcelona. Before setting up his business, Stephen was an elite runner and swimmer, while his academic career took him from the University of Glasgow all the way to Stanford and Carnegie Mellon. He's an honorary professor of health and well-being at the Glasgow School of Art and with the lab has delivered leadership development programs for the likes of Salesforce, Telefonica, Uber and McKinsey. He's the author of six books, including Chief Wellbeing Officer, which is also the title of his own podcast series. We discuss the connection between performance in the workplace and his experience in elite sports, the concept of marginal gains in creating a change culture within a large corporation, the role of senior executives in leading the way on workplace well-being, the potential of social dynamics in creating a positive change process. We take inspiration from Plato on prioritizing rest and recovery, the connection between individual team and societal well-being from his perspective, the business case for incidental movement during the workday, such as walking meetings, even the potential of conscious breathing as a way to manage stressful situations at work. There's a lot in here and he is a man full of incredible insight and seemingly endless array of uh, well-chosen quotes. So if you enjoy this content, please hit subscribe for regular updates. You can find links to Dr. Stevens' work and the lab, as well as my own contact details in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Dr. Stephen McGregor of the Leadership Academy Barcelona. Stephen, thanks for joining us. I'm going to jump straight in uh, with, with a starter for 10 around... You know, one of the things that I found most interesting about going through both of your books over the last couple of weeks in audio format, it has to be said, uh, is this connection, and you'll see why it's interesting to me, but this connection between performance and sport. So performance in the workplace and what you took from your experience in sport. And one of the key concepts that, that keeps coming up in your in your thoughts, in your thinking, is, is this idea of marginal gains. And I think it's so crucial to really understand and appreciate that because it can feel like creating change in an organization is just a it's a, an insurmountable mountain so how do you see applying the concept of marginal gains to to wellness in the workplace hi Matt. pleasure to to join you today on on the podcast yeah it's an interesting concept you know um a lot of people who are familiar with the concept in terms of following sport and particularly cycling and and track cycling where essentially the the term came from um, are kind of a little bit bored with hearing the term, but I think in business, it's still very much got a lot of potential, a lot of road to to run. And essentially, you know, for several years, I've been trying to convince people in business of the value of marginal gains. I mean, essentially, the, the way that we approach change within the workplace is that we have a huge change initiative and we go all out on that project, right? Whatever it may be. And, and you know, we get everyone involved and and... and but we don't, you know, we don't tackle it for a sufficient amount of time. And often we get these big change initiatives within within the workplace. And this doesn't have to be in the context of well-being at all, but it could be anything to change an organization. But change takes time. And of course, there's going to be a dip in performance often in the interim before you get that uptick and before you get those benefits. So often it's about, you know, staying the course. 
And just when, you know, things may start to change within the workplace, what happens? They go on to another change initiative. So that's very much the way of thinking in business regarding change. A huge effort on a big, big stretch goal for a period of time and then move on to something else. Marginal gains is about being more realistic with change and is recognizing that what you do every day matters more, much, much more than what you do every now and again. And I think we get that cumulative effect if we build it into our lives. So this could be the impact that we have on an organizational level or just on a personal level. And, and we know how fast life goes past and especially working life. And if we build it in, uh, we forget about it essentially, but we still get that cumulative, cumulative impact. And the other factor, and, and I'm talking about this in a program this week with Telefonica actually, is about the time that it takes us to uh, create a new habit. And essentially, it depends often on the complexity of the task. So if you make something small, if you make it simple, you that synaptic process in the brain, it snaps into place a lot faster. You actually build that habit in a short amount of time uh, and, and you can then build on the success of that or move on to something else. So it's a much more feasible approach to change when we have busy, chaotic lives. So really a lot of potential in that for business, I think. When you're working at an organizational level, there's obviously that that dichotomy between individual agency and and sort of corporate wide change. How do you think about engaging with a with a with a business, whether it's the CEO and it's sort of a one to one coaching, or whether it's something like a Telefonica, which is a, is a giant beast of an organization? How do you how do you get to into people's heads so that it's it's something that they can take on and and um, empower them to to implement change rather than it being something that's just sort of yeah, delivered at some sort of somewhat abstract corporate level. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and look, it's not easy, right? Um, you know, every every case and every client, I'm I'm learning something new. Um, I, I think there's a couple of key factors that I've learned over the years. One is to gain some level of executive sponsorship. So you want to really, you know, convince some senior people within the organization um, because what they will do essentially is role model um, and, 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 and that has a, a massive impact. I mean, in, regarding well-being, regarding any aspect of a, of a healthier way of working, a more positive culture, you know, we can have policies, we can have different functions such as HR that are actually trying to get people to change their behavior and maybe they take them on training programs and, and that's all very well and good. But then if people see the really senior guys and girls within the company and, and they're not following these policies, then they're not, they're not going to follow them either because either that's about thinking about what is, the, what is the shaping culture within an organization or maybe they aspire to be them in the future, either within that company or somewhere else they're going to follow their lead. So I think role modeling, getting some senior buy-in is absolutely critical. Uh, and then another factor is just making change easy and practical. And, and as you said, it's not to make it you know, too opaque or too kind of fuzzy and people don't really understand it. And, and you, know, you know this yourself, right? If you're trying to you know, make something happen and, and, and even in client conversations or, or make a change, you have to make that easy to understand. And if you're trying to, you know, sell, for want of a better word, the whole idea of a more positive workplace, but you keep it in a very kind of fuzzy, abstract, maybe overly academic, and I'm very conscious of that bias that I have myself at times, um, but I'm an engineer, right? I, I have a, a background in design thinking. Everything's about being practical, 
pragmatic, usable, accessible, and so that you present the objectives of what you want to do in terms of the context of well-being and a positive working place with something that is coming back to the marginal gain stuff, easy to do, but it's also highly visible, highly measurable, uh, and and you know there's there's no excuse for not doing it. And then so you you, you present that simplicity and that accessibility, and once people at all levels of an organization start to do that. And we often work with teams, right? We often work with trying to make teams more high performing. Uh, and, and that becomes sticky, that change. So then other teams see these rituals that these teams are adopting and they copy them, right? You know, we're social beings and, and we copy others, especially when we see things that we think are of value uh, and, and, and you know, are, are look good. Essentially, they're appealing. And I think everything within the space of well-being and a more positive working environment absolutely is appealing. It improves your daily experience of work. Work doesn't have to be about suffering. You know, we can really uh, improve our daily lived experience by making the workplace better, right? So we, we copy these simple things. People realize the positive impact that that has on their own uh, daily lived experience and that, that and that often takes us, you know, further within that within that overall objective. So I was going to ask whether you you rely more on on creating a sense of of innate interest and desire and 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 willpower within the individual, or whether it's more about creating systems and checks and balances, almost from an engineering perspective, in terms of making sure that certain things get done each day to increase the health and well being of the workers in the. In, in an organization, but you've thrown a third element into the mix there, which is social, right? So the, there's this sort of community aspect to it that in a way circumnavigates that individual agency around willpower or systems, or are you, are you, in a, are you effectively working with all three? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I mean, those first two points, I've, I've often reflected on that, and I think that's my background in design. So I'm an engineer, but the focus is, is design and design thinking. So that essentially gives us those two sides. It gives you the rigor and the process orientation and the checks and balances of engineering, but also gives you the creativity and the chaos and the freedom to find new solutions and to be innovative that comes from design. And and the best processes are a mix of both, right? You have to make sure that you're moving forward and you have those checks and balances, but you can't just be copying and pasting the things that you've done before. You need to have that that extra element of of newness and novelty. So those two elements have always been in my thinking and in my work. And in that social element, yeah, absolutely. I think the key point here, Matt, is that the whole field of well-being, it doesn't exist in isolation. So you never just think about, okay, how can I improve my own well-being? You know, that could be the starting point. It's often the starting point for our journeys with clients. But very quickly, that starts to extend outwards into other people, right? We we don't live in bubbles. We have to to extend, of course, in the pandemic, right? But, you know, we interact with others, with our families, with teams, with people in our neighborhoods. Uh, And so well-being, it it necessarily includes elements of well-being for these other people. So, you know, even coming back to a quote I remember in the book from an interview that I did, that if you're not well at home, you can't be well at work. And if you're not well at work, you can't be well at home, you know, fully and, and, and to the full potential of being well. And so, you know, individual well-being is often the starting point, but that necessarily has to extend into team, 
and organizational well-being and societal well-being. And we have to think about the values that we are uh, bringing into our daily lives. Uh, and I hope that if more and more people think about how they change their approach to, to a working life, then that will also improve the world around us. The way you've just described it, that, that really makes it clear how you're able to go and, and play with the big boys along the lines of, of Telefonica. I mean, you, you just can't uh, operate at that scale without the kind of systems approach that, that you've described. Um, I just wanted to pick up on, on one thing then. You know, we're, it's, between us, we're almost taking it for granted that there's this uh, direct link between health and well-being and productivity and performance. But it's, I'm conscious that it's not necessarily as obvious some people, if, if someone isn't especially interested in sport or fitness or, or physical um, health and activities, uh, then you know there's there's clearly a, a, a mental barrier to overcome there. Perhaps you could just talk to that that idea of because at some point you're taking time away from the office. It's not about necessarily just putting in more and more hours at your desk to to achieve more and to earn more money. Sometimes it's it's almost countersensical, right? The idea of having to invest more in yourself, perhaps taking time away from you and your computer or you at your desk in order to, for example, go do some exercise at lunchtime, but then to be more productive in the afternoon. Is that, is that sort of the basics of how you try and pitch it to someone who's just not in this in this space at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and over the years, I've had a lot of skeptics um, who, of course, have, you know, gained a great deal of success by just, grinding through and, and doing a ton of hours and just forgetting about every other part of it. Um, sooner or later, I, I, I think there does come a reckoning for that type of approach. And, and look, it can come very late in life. Um, but burnout is increasing for many people. Um, and, and the key that I often try and make the argument with and try and convince skeptics is that it's about sustainability right it's about okay you, you want to perform but if you really want to perform in the long term then you need to take into account these things you know sooner or later something is going to give and show the research right there's a lot of research out there and we're still lacking the big picture um on on a complex systems level but there are discrete studies which show along so many different dimensions that when you improve your own health and well-being this improves energy your ability to inspire others quality of ideas, creativity, many, many different things. The business case is absolutely there. It's inarguable in all these different dimensions. So it's just trying to get people to get on the journey to making these changes and to convince them that there is this strong business case. I think another key element is to show people, uh, and I'm very conscious of this because of my own background in sport and elite sport, that we can't make it threatening for people, and especially people who have never previously thought about their physical selves, right? Um, that, you know, and this is the thing, you know, I was inspired very early with a corporate athlete and I was reflecting on that earlier this week as well. And, and that metaphor even of the corporate athlete is powerful, but it isn't for everyone, right? Because you find, I think it's an overly male, perhaps an overly sport-driven uh, metaphor. And so for other people in the workplace, it doesn't quite resonate. So you need to be careful with some of these associations and so for me over the years, you know, the point of departure has been the physical self, but I've tried to present that in a non kind of, uh, you know, threatening way. And, 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 and one example, right? And I say to people every single time when I'm in a program, I say it's better to sit down less half an hour every day 
than to aspire to run a marathon. You know, the quick wins on your health is much more significant of combating a sedentary daily lifestyle than becoming uh, an Iron Man or Iron Woman, right? And this is often the case that we're presented with in corporate life as well. And I always remember a quote from Brendan Foster, the English distance runner, um, fantastic runner, Olympic athlete. And someone said to him, like, Brendan, how do you feel? You know, you must feel amazing being an Olympian. What does it feel like? And he said, look, I'm just tired. I'm just tired all the time, right? <laughs> and it's just, you know, we can take things too far. You, you know, I go back to a, a, a quote from Plato. And, and Plato, I used in, in a couple of my books in terms of the importance of health. And this isn't just exercise. And he was a champion wrestler. It's also thinking about sleep. But he also said, beware of the balance. You know, sleeping too much, it leaves you sluggish. If you train too much, you're not going to be better mentally. So there is that balance that we need. And just a final point, in the physical domain, in the sports domain, it isn't just the doing or, or the athletic output. It's the recovery. That's that's the big key that differentiates the best athletes, right? It's the recovery. So even just sleeping more uh, as, as an executive, research shows it improves executive function, uh, and it also changes that mindset that you talked about. You know, Claude Debussy said music is the space between the notes, and it's about trying to change that culture in high performers and saying, you've been fantastic so far. If you adopt some of these practices, you're going to take it to another level. I'm going to come back to the uh, the recovery, the rest and recovery chapter piece, because I think that's it's really key and it's a fundamental element and often something that's quite misunderstood. But I wanted to dig into the the idea of movement. You call it move as your, your chapter title. From where I am in, in creating these physical spaces, it, for us, that concept is often referred to as active design. So how are we like designing a space to promote movement? What I found fascinating talking to you is that you're coming at it more from the sort of the cultural change, the organizational change. And for you, you describe it more as incidental movement. So you describe stair use, for example. Like how else can people think, or sorry, you, just, you described not sitting down uh, all day in your chair and perhaps moving around a bit more, but how can people think about what's, it, on the face of it, a very basic elemental part of their day, but but in, integrating more movement at work. What are the sort of the simple basics that people can do there? That is often, you know, the the starting point for us. And 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 as I just mentioned, presenting the importance of of physical health and remembering that you have a body, but doing it in a non-threatening way. You know, scientists say that our ancestors would move up to twelve miles a day to hunt or to escape danger. But we have this highly sedentary life within the workplace now. And so moving at work does have the health benefits. But what we try and show people is that it changes the culture of work and the results of doing work. And it's another example of how we can adopt a lot of these practices, Matt, about changing the culture of work. And it's not about fixing ourselves after the work. Right, So we're in work and we're grinding through the day and then we go for a run at night to to recover or we go to the gym or we do a class and we just kind of get rid of all that stress. What we try and do is to integrate these elements and, as you say, incidental movement within a normal working day. So examples of that, meetings, right? a stand-up meeting. You, know, you have the benefit of burning more calories when you stand compared to sitting, uh, but it also means that meetings are much shorter and, of course, part of that whole agile transformation in the workplace, the 
past several years, stand-ups are a big part of that. A walking meeting. Steve Jobs was a big advocate of a walking meeting. He felt he'd really get to know someone on that walk. He did all of his recruitment on walking meetings. It's just much more enjoyable. And even the kind of seems like a simple thing, but rather than being face facing each other across a desk, which is quite an adversarial position, when you go for a walking meeting, you both have the same view. Uh, and it may sound insignificant, but I think that really does make a difference in coming towards a shared understanding. So there are different things that you can bring in. And even you know Stanford research shows also that just walking, the biomechanics of walking improves creativity by about 60%. That was some studies that were published a few years ago. So there we have things that we do in work, conversations, you know, uh, meetings, all of these different things which make up our daily working day. And if you integrate movement as part of that, you actually improve the quality of the work. And then, of course, you improve health as well. So you're winning on all, uh, all, all, all factors. And also another quote, I love to bring in a quote now and again, um, but uh, uh, David Kelly from, from IDEO, he said, when I see someone at their desk all day, it's suspicious how they pretend to work. And we still have that mindset. It's a very first industrial revolution mindset, you know, specialization of work. You're at your workstation and a sign of being productive is that you're at your desk, often with your head down, and you're doing the thing. But nowadays, you know, work is more collaborative. It has to have more energy behind it. And so movement necessarily has to be part of the new way of working. And as we move further into that fourth industrial revolution, you know, desk time shouldn't be about desk time. It's just, you know, get more movement, more walking, less sitting. And that's the basis of a, a much more positive way of working. So there you, that's sort of almost where I'd pick it up and say, okay, well then let's look at the floor plan of, of an office space and how can you create, for example, more collaborative spaces, more deep work spaces, more spaces with standing desks, spaces that are more geared towards sort of sitting down. And, and that's where the, the two connect. You can also imagine that you would almost try and encourage senior managers to book those standing meetings, right? To show that it's okay, that it's allowed. You then get into how you could instigate or, or foster a culture of of accepting that rest and recovery is crucial to sustainable um, performance in the workplace, right? So clearly, there are certain there must be um, organizations that you encounter that are still working in that that sort of almost I want to say macho approach of of more is more, uh, more hours, less rest, stay longer. Um, I mean, it's still hugely prevalent in Asia. I know you've done some work in China. You must have been exposed to it firsthand there. When you're thinking about rest and recovery in the workplace, it might not seem the first place to go look for it, but you've mentioned sleep and performance. What other things do you, are you working with? What are your levers there when you're encouraging a more holistic approach to how you can be productive during the workday? Yeah, no, great question. You know, I think it's giving people options. Um, and, and as you say, you know, sleep is the is the main means of recovery and something that often makes a big difference to people's lives um, along so many dimensions um, uh, in terms of, you know, well-being, but also uh, creativity and thinking ability and executive function tasks, essentially, which involves creativity, but also judgment and a lot of these other higher order levels of thinking that, that we have increasingly in business. But we can't forget about the, the day and the full day. And so essentially we give people options and we focus on different pockets of time because we need recovery as human beings along different paths of time, right? So every day we need to sleep. Um, you know, every year or every you know few months, right? Maybe it might be vacation that we really need, really, you know, downtime, really 
uh, change our view. You know, some people every several years take a secondment or whatever it is, right? So we need recovery and functions of different time and also on the smaller scale. So what do we do inside the working day? Do you take a lunch, right? You know, working working lunch or a meeting, grabbing a sandwich and, and chugging through an extra meeting is very common in a lot of organizations. But breaks between meetings, for example. Microsoft last week came out with a lot of research into virtual meetings and brain, brain imaging when people have these back-to-back meetings and they don't have a break. By the third and the fourth meeting, brain imaging scans show that there's a lot of pressure in the brain which causes you know different effects and it absolutely affects your health and well-being and also your performance. So even a five-minute break between meetings is something we've been advocating for a while, right? So taking breaks in a long day with virtual meetings, one of these characteristics of the pandemic, and other aspects that you can do, you know, get away from the desk, get outside. You know, the, the importance of nature, as you know very well in your, your own work, Matt, right? Looking out the window, right? Um, you know, we're part of nature, so getting those elements in a day. And even other things like breathing, you know? So we take people through the importance of breathing, that even if you can't escape a meeting, you're in a very challenging situation, how can you change your style of breathing which also changes your heart rate variability and, and, and the part of your nervous system, and it has so many other deep impacts. So it's, it's trying to show people that we can recover all the way through our day, and we don't just have to, again, coming back to a previous point, fix ourselves when we go home at night or when we close the laptop, right? There's a little bit there. There's something in there perhaps about, at least from my perspective, of that Buddhist theory of, of loving yourself, uh, in order to share more love with the world. And if you can't give that little bit back to yourself during your day, the reality is, yeah, you, you're going to be limited in terms of what you can give. And it, it is that change in mindset. Um, and it's it's really, I think, it's fundamental to where we're at right now. I love I love what you're, you're doing. One of my favorite pieces from your, from your book uh, was with the idea of, if you think your meeting is going to be 60 minutes, then uh, try and halve it and see what happens to your productivity. So I'm going to be conscious of your time. I'd really recommend people check out Chief Wellbeing Officer. It's a very accessibly written book. It's it's not academic. Perhaps the um, sustainable executive performance would be for people who wanted to go a bit deeper. So you've got the books, you've got your own podcast. If people are interested in connecting on a coaching level, like what are the sort of services, if you like, that you're offering? What are you? How do you put yourself out there? Yeah, I mean, you know, within the lab, we're doing a lot of programs and, and we do that with teams. You know, the great thing about the pandemic is that it's allowed us to try and scale up our reach. Um, so, you know, globally, we're doing a lot more, even over the years, as you said, you know, I taught in China, uh, also Latin America, a lot over there in, in different parts of the Middle East. Um, but, you know, virtual trainings are, are offering us the chance to, to reach a larger audience with, with bigger numbers. A lot of what we do is, is these workshops that we take people through through different programs and that is accompanied sometimes by by individual coaching, right? So, you know, all those things to just try and change people's behavior and and, and just have an impact on culture. That's what we love to see um, and, and make a difference to people, not, you know, just for them and, and actually, you know, being a higher performer. If they do that, that's great. But we just want to, you know, the short life we have, right, Matt? And we just want people... To have a happier life as well, and to and if that relates to passion and them doing uh, a, a great work, then then that's that's great reward for me. I'm delighted to do that. They're good vibes, that's for sure. Stephen, thanks again for your time. It's been great. Pleasure, Matt. All the best. Bye bye.